Welcome. You are listening to Crossword, where the cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. My name is Michelle McAloon, your host. Today, we are talking with a big, big name because he is one of the leading intellectual lights in the country today with absolutely the book of the moment, Mr. Sorab Amari. Mr. Amari is the opinion editor of the New York Post, a contributing editor of the Catholic Herald, and a columnist for First Things. His book, The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos, has without a doubt been one of the most talked about books this year. It really has been. Welcome, Mr. Amari. Please call me Saurabh. Thanks for having me. Okay, Saurabh. What has been shocking to me about your book is not that it is so widely read and discussed because it is a well-written book and you are absolutely a master storyteller and you have many more books to come in you, I hope. But what is shocking is who's reading and discussing your book. Everyone from the New York Times to Spectator Magazine, National Catholic Register, Wall Street Journal, I mean, everyone who is anybody is talking about your book. And what's amazing to me is that this is a deeply conservative, or what is traditionally thought of as a conservative book. But your book has such broad appeal and commentary. It seems to be tickling an itch of something people want to discuss in this particularly poisonous and divisive age. What do you think is the appeal of your book right now? Well, well, thank you for the kind words. And to be honest, you know, if I had a goal with this book was precisely to write the book that quote unquote, everyone talks about, even if they don't always agree with it. And I think the reason that I achieved that without sort of tooting my own horn, (laughs) but to point at what the book is getting at that I think is resonating with people is that this is a book I wrote based on my own anxieties as a father. It's a book I wrote for my son, Max. He's four years old now. He was two when I started writing the book. And those anxieties are are basically like, what kind of a man will our contemporary civilization chisel out of my Max if, if I don't try to form him? I'm very worried that our civilization or our culture will deform him. And... I think that that is a widely shared anxiety, not just among Christians, but a lot of people of faith, uh, people of tradition, but also people who maybe don't have that kind of religious language for what they feel like is ailing our society right now, but they feel it. And this book, I think, gives them a language and a way to think about what is the source of our anxiety and, and our sense that something's gone wrong with the West. And not only that, but then offers a different way of looking at things that could maybe get us out of the current impasse. So that's been the appeal of the book. And the other thing I think you hinted at, I should just briefly note for for listeners who haven't heard about the book, I kind of created a genre of book in writing this, which is, so I wanted to poke holes at some of our contemporary certainties, which I think are are the source of some of our problems, especially for parents. And I wanted to offer tradition as an alternative, tradition broadly and in some ways ecumenically understood. But instead of my sort of banging on my own worldview, what I did was I posed those questions and then I explore each of them through the life of one great thinker. Some of them kind of predictable, you would expect them to appear in a book about tradition. So, you know, St. John Henry Newman, St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas. But some of them are, you know, un- unexpected figures like the feminist Andrea Dworkin or the rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, a mid 20th century Hasidic intellectual, or Confucius makes an appearance. Right. And therefore, 
the book doesn't hit people thick with philosophy and theology because I'm not a philosopher. I'm, I'm not a theologian. I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm a storyteller. So that the ideas are introduced in this very, I would say, welcoming way. You just, you're reading about one person's life and the ideas are developed through the drama of that person's life, beginning, middle, and end. So it's very narrative driven and that always appeals to people. I tell you, I am a theologian. I have a master's degree in theology and I also have a canon law degree. Mm-hmm. And reading your book, I had a really kind of, maybe a different perspective on it. Your book is broken into two parts, the things of God and the things of humankind. And I don't know if that was planned or an accident. As you say, you weave a narrative of what is true intersectionality of different lives and different times, all probing the same question. And the question that you seem to be asking through tradition is what are the implications if we truly do belong to God? What our moral existence actually is a response to a loving God's initiative. So what this actually is, I see it in a very wide way as a modern catechesis of the Ten Commandments. That is what I thought was the brilliance of it. And it touches home. And you even kind of divide it up into the two parts, a little bit like the Decalogue Mm -hmm. or the Ten Commandments. Was this done on purpose? You're right. I hadn't thought about it, but I I guess I happened self-conscious or unconsciously. But yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to structure questions beginning with kind of what can you know and what gives your life justification and meaning. And I, you know, in the opening chapter, I had to deal with scientism, which is a kind of prevailing ideology where a lot of people who aren't scientists buy these science ideologues claim that basically, you know, quantum mechanics and big bang theory and other sort of discoveries, which are very valuable discoveries have supplanted the need for metaphysics, for theology, for philosophy, and then go through from there, which is a question of what, what gives your life meaning at the, at the most basic level to, okay, well, if, if that doesn't suffice, then, you know, it's God. And if that, uh, if there is a God, then, you know, why would he want you to take a day off? So the Sabbath, and then to bring it kind of lower down into the purely natural world. And so you're right, then you have sort of obligations to neighbor, obligations to the body, obligations to parents. And I, one more note, I mean, I don't know how this kind of is fully responsive to your question, but it's worth noting that although I draw from these very disparate traditions and I leap from question to question, there is a very clear thread running through the book, which is that ultimately the pre-modern traditions, both the Judeo-Christian matrix, if you will, and the, the class, you know, Greco-Roman classical tradition, and as, as the kind of natural law appears in other civilizations as well, they all emphasize that you, you know, people become truly free, truly happy, and who they really are by accepting various limits, whether those are limits of, politically speaking, your politics are ultimately ordered to some higher vision. So St. Augustine, that there's a higher power than your political and earthly authorities, and therefore that should set a limit into what government does and shape what government does. Whether that's the limit of the Sabbath as a source of liberation, that your life is actually all those Sabbath restrictions look like they impose on you. You're not supposed to do certain things uh, on a holy day. In fact, you find that those limits are a source of freedom and the loss of those freedoms, the loss of those limits paradoxically makes you less free because you're 
more harried, at the mercy of corporate employers, at the mercy of your smartphone, and you don't have a day of rest or a, a day to be with family and with God. So I could go on. But basically, that's the thread that is really the thread in the title is the wisdom of traditional limits and how the kind of quest for total human mastery, which really arises after the Enlightenment, has in demolishing these barriers and demolishing these traditional guardrails has made us paradoxically less free, sort of liberatory uh, rhetoric of Enlightenment ideology. Sure, absolutely. And so what you're saying is that our embodied reality actually has limits. And in recognizing these limits, we actually kind of find our freedom, that we cannot go beyond these limits. can, but at a very high price, at a too high price. Right. Oh, yeah. We could throw freedom away. We can, and that's exactly what we do is when we try to go beyond what the moral responsibility of our embodied limits. And that is, so I cannot say that Michelle is Michael. I just can't. That's going beyond the moral reality of an embodied experience. That is just, that that is not reality. That's not the truth. I will always be DNA. I will always be a girl. I'll always be Michelle. I cannot make it up to something else. But instances in our society now where we are trying to go beyond what we are capable of and what we are morally capable of. So Moses is in the desert. He's got a wild group of people. They're called Israelites. And God comes down and lays down the law. He lays down 10 precepts that have to be followed to find peace and freedom in this life as both individuals and as community. And as you do, you open up with a fight against scientism. But maybe that really is knowing who God is, knowing who the great I am is. I am who I am. And that is loving God above all others. Then you move into neighbor. Then you move into parents. These are all common realities throughout the world. I just, I think this book is ingenious because what you're talking about really is the 10 commandments without talking about the 10 commandments to a group of people who may not even understand what the 10 commandments are, but you are able to transmit that unbroken thread of wisdom through this book. And I do think this is actually amazing and that people are picking up on this. Don't you find that amazing? I liked how you you brought up the Mosaic Law. It's funny, so much in the, in the Psalms, for example, is this idea that by un- trying to understand the law and to adhere to the moral law, you find your freedom. And again, it's this seemingly paradoxical claim. So the psalmist, you know, sings in Psalm 119, I shall walk in liberty, for I have sought thy precepts. So it's the precepts that, that allow the psalmist to feel free. And I think that's a really, I don't know, it's a very important insight for our age because what I worry about is someone like my son when he's growing up or his peers, a lot of our elite, young elites today, they tend to, they keep saying, I want to keep my options open and I don't want to be encumbered by anything. And in reality, because of that attitude, they don't actually exercise their freedom. They don't ever reduce their you know, potency to act, to use, to, to use Aristotelian terms. They're always in a kind of state of flux, right? So they like, they'll date for 10 years 
and then they're right. quite married. And then they'll, right. you know, <laughs> um, right. they will never commit to one state of life, you know, in a hundred percent. And I think the reason that that's happening is precisely because they don't have the precepts of the law of tradition of so- because in order to move forward, in order to leap into the future, you actually need to know what's come up behind you. And that's what tradition is. You know, the priest who actually received me into the Catholic church as a, as a great uh, English priest called tradition. He just defined it very simply as ordered continuity and ordered continuity is just this sense that, you know, that the steps that led you up to this point, and you have these guardrails around you. And when you have that, then you can leap into the future with a kind of confidence and, and a sense of, okay, this is who I truly am. And this is, you know, Cardinal Ratzinger said in Introduction to Christianity, this is the firm program. And if I stay on these lines, I will be fine. I'll be happy. I'll be safe. And we don't have that. And I think so that's, I think, what's caused the book to find a moment and resonate with so many readers, including, as you noted, you know, it's getting the kind of liberal media is also right people that to react to it they are and people you would never think that would react when i saw the article in new york times i was uh, i was floored by it i really i really was you know one of the things you bring up a really great great point and that you hear so often right now and it's so overused but being spiritual without being religious Mm. And I love how you use the tale of Victor and Edith Turner watching the native tribes in Central Africa back in the 1950s. And, and you write, I love this line, religious ritual is indispensable to building authentic community, resolving otherwise intractable conflicts and upholding the humanity of the weakest members of the community. And you are explaining what it is to be in communitas. And this is what we're seeing that people in a very highly atomized individualism, as one of my other authors has used that phrase, is we do not want to form community. And unfortunately, that has been exacerbated by something called a pandemic over the last 14 months that we've gone through. So the community is so important to our embodied reality. And that embodied reality, we understand that from the limits placed on in the Ten Commandments. So it all comes together. It's You did a great job on this. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's probably my favorite chapter because it's a story that I hadn't, you know, okay, the story of, of Aquinas in chapter two, you know, is God reasonable? Everyone in a way knows. And I, I've been pretty pleased with how I, Know, maybe gave it a fresh gloss or, or an interesting telling. But Victor and Edith Turner, I, you know, I sort of feel like I discovered very well known in the world of anthropology and specifically the anthropology of religion. But the story is not more widely known. And as you said, they, I mean, there were English anthropologists, completely atheistic, in fact, members of the Communist Party. And, but they're interested in tribal ritual. And they, the question that drove them to go to Africa is, why is it that traditional societies like African tribal societies mark these passages in life, like, for example, the passage from boyhood to male maturity with this kind of ritualistic way, whereas in the modern world of the modern West, we have those kinds of uh, rights, R-I-T-E, rights. And they, so they go to Africa and they notice that, you know, there are certain things that are otherwise inaccessible to modern. So, for example, why is it that the tribal chief in this community, the Ndembu that they studied in Zambia, why is it that in order to 
become the chieftain, he first had to kind of pay obeisance to this figure that represented a weakness or femininity. And this figure actually told him or required him to endure all sorts of insults from the rest of the community. And in order to become the chief, he had to promise that he wouldn't hold those insults that he received during the ritual against the members of the community. So he had to basically ritual help to remind him that he only has power in order to save the community, in order to serve the people. So, and in fact, Victor and Edith Turner compare that to the role of the Pope. He's the servant of the servants of God. Where else but in ritual can you have these kinds of benefits of ritual religion? There's no other realm in life. And I think today we have all sorts of ritual, but because they don't have the ultimately a wholesome account that religion combines with ritual, they're just kind of vicious ritual. So, for example, we have a rite of penance in the modern world on Twitter. If you cross certain politically correct lines, you're supposed to say, you know, I confess, I confess to my friends that I have greatly sinned. I've, you know. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I've reached the precepts of uh, critical race theory through, right, my, fault, right. through my fault, through my most grievous fault, except there's no, there's no mercy to be found at the end of that. You're just, you're banished forever. Right, and, right. There's no redemption. There's, there's and no that's redemption. The problem. So yeah. We, we sort of have ritual without spirituality and we have spirituality without ritual which is you know that's also weak sauce right i do yoga on fridays and i eat only you know hot peppers and juice on saturdays and that's right in a way that's ritualistic but it lacks public kind of account of okay well who are you as a human being how does this bring you into how does this bring your life into adherence with some greater thing than yourself it's just about you Right. It's just about you. And it doesn't bring you into community. And that is one thing that we have really, really understood is the absolute need for community. And I don't care if it's called your Twitter community or it's your Zoom community or it is your real live person community. But community is an issue for human beings. And without it, we tend to fall apart. And again, I go back to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments provide rules and guidelines for a community of people, for individuals operating in that community of people. One of your most poignant chapters, I believe, is on parents and what we owe to duty as parents. And this kind of ties in, I believe, with your very beginning line with C.S. Lewis. You take away the hump of the camel. Mm -hmm. It may not be a camel anymore, right? Mm -hmm. You take away the humanity of our sonship and our daughtership we may not be in the human family anymore. We may not be in community anymore. Yeah, we become and, less than fully human. In yes, we do. Yeah, we do. And kind of, we become redacted humans. We become, you know, virtual humans in a way if we are not tied to our natural goods. And our natural goods are mom and dad, the universal experience of the whole world. And, you know, I'd even go further than that. What is the one common problem that people have across the universe? Every married person has this. A mother-in-law, right? 
<laughs> that's why I mean, and there's some great mother-in-laws out there, but I mean, everybody has that commonality of a mother-in-law and there's beautiful, beautiful mother-in-laws, but everybody knows, you know, there's always the jokes and the burdens of mother-in-laws. But again, that is that embodied reality of living into family. And how do you owe the tradition of your family? How do you pay back to the people that brought you into this world? And I, that's a very poignant chapter in, especially for a lot of people who's, you know, parents have been challenging to them. Mm-hmm. And you bring a great, great, great story of Confucius into that. But I think probably your best chapter is your chapter on death, on Seneca's mm-hmm. view of death and of how Death actually makes us live. The nobility of death brings existence, it brings meaning to us, and it brings morality to us. And without it, again, without a human death, without a bodied, embodied death, we lose meaning as human beings. So our lives are very much meaningful by our birth by our life with our families, by how we serve God, how we serve each other, and then eventually by how we die. I thought that was a very, very poignant chapter. What did you learn about yourself, I would ask, in writing this book? You know, it's good that you brought up the chapter about death, which is that see, I was writing that chapter because I wrote this book from, let's say, summer 2019 through spring of 2020. So toward the end, which is the final chapter had to be about this final limit you should accept namely death i happened to be writing it at the height of the pandemic at the height of the covid crisis and and i really i mean i sort of discovered seneca not discovered in the sense that i would say i knew seneca and i I read seneca but really delved into his teachings on death and he's the sort of one western thinker who probably devoted the most kind of sheer number of words to the question of death than any other in our tradition and what was useful about that was obviously that it was taking place against this backdrop of, you know, anxiety about the coronavirus. That was when the hospitals were filling up and I was worried about the you know, ventilators. And it's all kind of nightmarish now, but that was when this chapter was written. And I really, as a Christian, I hadn't, I think as a Christian, it benefited me to, to do an exercise that Seneca had recommended, which is that you should always, you know, begin each day contemplating the possibility of your death. This could be the last day, whether you choke on an apple or whatever piano falls on you, cartoon style from a, from a tall building, whatever it might be, you know, it could be the last. So if you think about it, you, you know, kind of try to put yourself at ease with it, then you live more fully, more virtuously. It doesn't mean you live in fear, it's quite the opposite. You're just like, okay, yeah, you know, I could go anytime. So that means I have to be responsible. That means I have to be joyous. And that's an exercise that I, you know, have taken on now. I do try to think every, begin every morning with just the kind of memento mori that, you know. Sure, uh, sure. And it's funny that it came to me. It's, it's perfectly attuned with Christian spiritual practice, but it, I picked it up from a, a pagan Stoic thinker. Though I should note, a pagan Stoic thinker, thinker that the church fathers, he's the one kind of Roman pagan thinker that the church fathers wrote about almost exclusively in adulatory positive terms. They, you know, unlike many others, they did not criticize Seneca. And that's, I think, because 
something about his brand of stoicism is it almost anticipates Christ. I mean, he didn't have the full benefit of revelation. His, his life actually overlapped with, with our Lord's life. But Seneca, I think, you know, is is one of those who's, you know, I'm, I'm sure will be, um, <laughs> well, I can't say for sure, but I would guess is one of the just, pagan just who ultimately is saved. Uh, yeah, maybe. Who knows? Maybe. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll see in heaven, right? We'll see if he's. We'll see if he's up there. But and you know, one thing about Seneca is that he lived in a time as chaotic as ours, if not more so chaotic and harder than ours. And he came up with this beautiful philosophy. You were part of the intellectual elite of New York City, of the universe, of the world. People read you all over the world. If there were a hundred Sorabs in New York City in Los Angeles, in Washington, D.C., in Paris and London, the conversation worldwide would change. It would change in the United States and it would change here. One of the things that you as an intellectual elite, I love that you do, is your very, very last letter to the future St. Maximilian II, right? You tell him to hold on to his mother, to listen to his mother as an uneducated and peasant man. I love that last. It makes your whole book. It really does. And to be able to say that and give that direction to your son is actually, it's heart-wrenching. I'm talking about, you know, our blessed mother. Obviously, he should also hold his natural mother's hand. But I'm That's right. He should. <laughs> I'm sorry. I should have made, I should yeah. have made that clear too. Yeah. That you ask him to hold the blessed mother's hand in yeah. a way that is uneducated in a simple peasant way and to ultimately do what her son tells him to do. Right. And the whole, the whole of the gospel can be summed up in our ladies. Do as he says, <laughs> you know? do as he says is the Decalogue. And the, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, it's all sort of rolled into three words. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know what? It's simple instructions, but hard to follow. That's what it is. Sure, you know, the, sure. it's, the, it, it's so, so easier said than done. Yeah. It's a, and the Bible is filled with that. Well, you know what? I won't take much more of your time. I really want to congratulate you on this book. And you know what? I ask that you stay on this theme because you have the platform and people are listening to you. And what you're writing is really important. And I think by the success of this book, it's what people want to hear. So stay on this theme. It's important. It's important not only to you and to the future St. Max, but also in his family and your family. But it's important to all of us, especially now at this time. You can buy your book anywhere. And I always ask the author where we can go buy the book. Where would you prefer people go buy your book? Am I putting you on the spot? In No, no, no. I would say you can get it from Amazon if you're willing to, because Amazon obviously heavily discounts it. But if you're willing to pay a little bit more and buy it from at least a brick and mortar shop that isn't in the business of censoring authors like my friend, uh, you know, Dr. Ryan Anderson of Ethics and Public Policy Center, and it's just basically, we've learned, is a bad, woke corporation, you know, so Barnes & Noble is better. Or you can go directly to the publisher by going to penguinrandomhouse.com. That's penguinrandomhouse.com, all one word, and okay. uh, search for the title. Very good. I'm surprised your book hasn't been censored, tell you the truth. It shocks me what is censored and what is is not censored. So I've right. been surprised by that. There's a subversive element to my book because, you know... As many commentators have pointed out, a lot of, I think, people, because it's written in this gentle, ecumenical way, the 
some of the more subversive elements of it get past the uh, our woke overlords. Yeah, who knows what the oracles are up there they're doing. So we've been speaking with Sorab Armari in his book, The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. This is mandatory reading. Do yourself a favor, read this book, buy this book for someone else. It's an investment in the future and in now. Thank you. You've been listening to Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. You can find this podcast and other great Catholic radio programming on archangelradio.com. Please find me on Twitter on Michelle M at Michelle MacLoon one. And thank you so much, Mr. Amari. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. God bless. 